2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 to 25. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And when he went into the house of the Lord, then he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped and then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Uh, My wife uh, will now pray for us. All right, let's pray. Father, we um, gather here this Sunday morning excited to hear your word and Um, your encouragement for our hearts and for our weeks. Father, we come here to praise you and to thank you for everything you've done through your son and everything you're doing in and through our lives here in Escondido. Father, I pray over Matt as um, as he teaches from your word this morning. I pray that uh, he would be a mouthpiece Uh, to us, and that our hearts would be open to receive your truth and your grace this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Good morning, church. It's good good to be with uh, church family. Y'all have uh, just blessed me so much throughout my time being here, and and especially uh, recently and and I'll get into more of that a little bit um, later. If you're new, my name is Matt Ortiz. I'm one of the pastors here. I'd love to meet you. Um, so, you know, uh, if, if you have the courage to introduce yourself to me afterwards, um, I'd, I'd love to shake your hand and, and get to know you. One of the things that um, we've been going through is uh, an Advent series called Advent of the King. Now, what we've learned the last couple of weeks is that Advent is not just 
for Christmas. That's why we can carry our Advent series past Christmas if we want to. And we wanted to. So we are. See, Advent is also about expectant waiting, expectant preparation for the return of King Jesus to make everything wrong in the world right. In the meantime, we wait in a world that is broken and filled with pain and suffering and tragedy and shattered hopes and dreams. We wait in a world that's filled with suffering. Now, we've been looking at the Old Testament, the first kings of God's people, King Saul and King David, but the point for them in their stories, for being in the Bible, is to point us to the true king, which is King Jesus. Now, David was known as a man after God's own heart. But after he, he assumed the throne, his heart grew hard. And in the passage for this morning, King David is floored by the most intense suffering. For a week, he didn't eat. He didn't bathe. He lay on the floor in agony, weeping. And God said, I forgive you, but your child must die. I, you can't just blow right past that. That is a disturbing part of the Bible. And it reflects an incredibly disturbing part of life. And if you are a Christian, a question that you will ask at some point in your life is, God, you say I'm forgiven, so why in the world is this stuff happening to me? We all have to face that question sooner or later. So let's face it right now together. If God is real, why is all this messed up stuff happening? I want to make something crystal clear for us this morning. The scriptures don't give us all of the information that we want to answer all the questions we have about suffering. Suffering is like a dark, uh, like a dark night. The Bible doesn't give us all the light to, to dispel all of the shadows, but it does give us enough light to walk so we don't fall off the edge of the cliff. It does give us enough light to get up from the floor and go on living. David is floored. He is devastated. Friends urge him to get up and bathe and, and eat, but he refuses. And when his son dies, the servants are afraid to tell him because they're afraid King David might kill himself. I, I cannot imagine a more painful loss than the loss of a child. And I know people who have gone through that. And, and, and my kid, you know, my son's 20 and, and uh, 17. You never stop. It doesn't matter how old your kids get. You never stop worrying about your kids, right? And there were times where I thought something did or might or could have happened to my, and it fills you with just the darkest nightmares. I can't imagine anything more painful than the loss of a child. David, though, eventually gets up with dignity, strength, and peace. He got up, he worshipped, he bathed, he ate, and he comforted his wife. I don't see how that's even possible. I mean, how is he able to do that? I mean, what did he get? 
while he was down and out that, that enabled him to comfort his wife and comfort himself. He got three things that we're going to be talking about this morning. And I'm telling you, they won't keep you from getting floored. They're not going to keep you from getting floored because suffering will knock you down. And it'll knock you down again and again. But these three things will help you get back up. I'm not saying you'll be up in seven days like David was. This passage isn't teaching that. Sometimes it takes a lot longer, but it does teach us that you can get up and press on. So first, if you're taking notes with the outline in your bulletin, when suffering knocks you down, remember, it's not payback, it's surgery. Now, we got to spend a little extra time on, on this one, a, lot, a little bit more time than, than the others. Because when we sin and then suffer, our normal reaction is, God is punishing me. This is payback for all the things that I did. And you know what? No doubt David struggled with this. I mean, think about what he did do. He has an affair with his friend's wife, gets her pregnant. In an attempt to cover up, David has her husband, his friend Uriah, killed. And in the process, other soldiers were killed too. It doesn't get much worse than that. For a year, he talks to no one about his sin, not even God. And then one day, God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David. And finally, David confesses his sin. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 13, where David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. He has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Now, listen, no doubt David agonized over the thought that his boy's death was punishment for his sin. But then later he gets up from the floor and he he worships. I mean, how can he do that? What insight did he get? He realized the boy's death was not payback, it was surgery. God said through Nathan, I put away your sin. I do not see it anymore. It is out of my sight. Therefore, you shall not die. I am not punishing you. Suffering's not payback. Then the verse says, nevertheless... Nevertheless, and that word contrasts the verse with the one before it. If if you only had verse 14 and not the previous one, you'd think God is saying, you know what? You didn't honor me, and I'm going to hurt you now. But the previous verse says, I'm not going to do that. Nevertheless, even though you're not being paid back, there is something in your heart that needs to be repaired. And, And what was it for David? I mean, how could a man after God's own heart commit adultery and then murder? How could he do something so incredibly horrible and unthinkable? It was David's contempt. It was David's contempt. He did not take God seriously, and therefore he didn't take what was right and wrong seriously. So he just did whatever he wanted to do. You know... At an, in an earlier time, 
Look what David, look where his heart was. Look what he wrote in, in Psalm 27. He says, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Back then, God was central in his life. Everything, he, God was everything he wanted. God was everything that he needed, but then he lost sight of that. His own desires became the most important thing in his life, and it distorted everything else. If God was still the most important thing in his life, when he saw Bathsheba, he would have said, you know what, she's not for me. I could never betray God's love for me in that way. And when God is at the center of you heart, your heart, you are completely free from those kind of uh, temptations owning you. When God is at the center of your, of your life, nothing can make you cowardly. Nothing can make you dishonest. God, or excuse me, David had that freedom, but he lost it, and something must be done to heal his heart. You know, again, when my kids were babies, taking them in for shots was brutal, man. They didn't understand, they couldn't understand why we asked some stranger to stab them in the leg with a sharp needle. You can't reason with them. They don't care what you have to say. Just don't let that happen again, right? In their mind, there was no reason for it. They didn't know what we knew. Larry Crabb wrote a book called Finding God. And even just in the, in the dedication, this line stands out to me. He, he dedicates it to a mentor of his, and he says, In the memory of Dr. Charles Smith, a mentor who prayed that his cancer would return if it brought him closer to God. And in his last year, he found God in a measure he had never known before, and then he died of cancer. If that sounds stupid to us, it means that we don't know the reality of God that, that David lost. Because if you have the reality of God, you have everything. And if you don't, you have nothing. And most of the time, don't even realize it. In another place in the Psalms, David says, You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have nothing. And Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup, meaning you alone are my real wealth. You alone are my real pleasure. And nothing's worse than losing that because nothing's better than having that. And God says, I am doing this so you can get it back. It's not payback. It's surgery. I think that's very important for you to understand something, for me to understand something, remember it, and not forget. We must see a difference between David and her, his circumstances and us and our circumstances. God directly tells David, I mean, through, through, through Nathan the prophet, there was direct communication there that there was a direct connection between his sin and his son's death. God doesn't do that today. Since the Bible is complete, we no longer have prophets like Nathan who function in that way. So we should not draw connections where the Bible doesn't. And, and you know, maybe you're thinking, you know, does this mean if I had a kid out of marriage, God will punish my child? If my kid suffers, is it, is it because I sin? Does all my suffering have a connection to a specific sin in my life? No. 
Now, some sin does have a built-in obvious consequence, but you can't speculate and make connections where the Bible doesn't and say that God told you. Definitely don't do it for other people who are going through it. In John 9, the disciples see a blind man from birth, and they ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, they wanted to make a direct connection. Jesus wouldn't let them. So Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work might be displayed in his life. And then Jesus healed the blind man. What this passage does teach is that when you confess your sin, God forgives you. He's not punishing you. He loves you. Suffering is not payback. It's surgery. And God can use it for our good. Next. Remember, it is not the end. There is more to the story. When we suffer a loss like David, our normal reaction is to think, my life is over. This is not where I thought I would be. This is not how I planned for things to go. I will never be happy again. I will never fulfill the purpose that I thought God gave to me. It's easy to think that. And many of you have been there. And if you haven't yet, you will be. So you gotta be prepared. No doubt David struggled with this. It seemed like his life was, was over. And yet David got up the, off the floor and pressed on. He worshiped his, his, the, the creator of the universe, God Almighty, who holds everything together. And then he comforted his wife. How in the world did he get that when he was down and out? And what we miss so often. Verse 21 then his servant said to him, what is the stain that you have done? We don't understand. You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but, but when the child died, you arose and, and ate food. We don't get it. David said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And with those words, I shall go to him, David is saying, suffering will not have the last word. With those words, he is expressing his faith that he will be reunited with his son in the world to come. And, you know, he's not saying, I'll join my son in the grave. There's no comfort in that. The hope that, that gets, gets him up to go on is the hope that he'll enjoy eternal life in the presence of God and, and his child. He's focused on God now. And where did that come from? Well, God promised that his people, if they trusted in the Messiah who was to come, that, that he would give them victory over the grave. And David believed that. And you see that in, in Psalms like Psalm 16 where, where he says, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave. You have made known to me the path of life. 
You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That is worship right there. That is, that is a heart at peace. Ultimately, ultimately, the only thing that can get you up from the floor is the confidence that suffering will not have the last word. That there's life beyond the grave. That there's more to the story and, and you're not gonna miss out on anything. I, maybe you don't believe that. I think in a conversation, we wrestled with it a little bit, and you were totally honest. I think deep down, you at least have a hope for that. There's a part of you that, that believes that, but cynicism kind of quashes it. The truth is you were created with that hope within you. The Bible teaches that God has written eternity on our hearts. You know what? You ever read a book or, uh, 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 or, or watch a, a movie that just moved you, like emotionally? I mean, some stories move you more than others. Um, movies like, you know, Shawshank Redemption or Black Klansman or It's a Wonderful Life or Slumdog Millionaire or Dunkirk. And, and, and we have this built-in desire for justice to triumph. And when it doesn't, we get angry or sad. And when it does, we cheer, right? Great stories move us because they point to our need for the gospel. When we suffer, we long for someone to just stop it. For the wrongs to, to be made right, for the brokenness to be healed, for death to be conquered with life. We long for that. So if you don't buy that there's more to the story after this life where everything will be as it should with God, but you're feeling that deep longing for it, you're closer to faith than you think. Because you know that there's more to the story. That's in you, it's not going anywhere. Next, it's not plan B, it's plan A. When suffering destroys your plans, when, it, when suffering destroys and shatters your dreams, it is very easy to think, well, I guess I have to settle for God's plan B. I have to settle for God's second best. My sin or this tragedy, this suffering means that God can't use me the, the way he might have used me otherwise. And you know what? I imagine David struggling with that because what was God's plan A for David's life? It was to bear the, the family line from which the Messiah would be born. God promised David, from you will come the one who will save the world. The Messiah is, is one of your descendants. I will be his father and he will be my son. His throne will last forever. That was plan A. And then David blew it and he must have thought, well, there goes plan A. There's no way an adulterer and a murderer can be trusted to bear the Messiah's family line. I have to settle for plan B. God can't use me anymore. Yet David gets up off the floor. 
he realized that all of God's dealings with us are by grace. And as a result, God never, ever has a plan B. Our God is bigger than our sin. Our God is stronger than our failures. He is not the source or the creator of sin and brokenness. He is so strong and so loving. He's able to weave our failures and our suffering into plan A in a way that his glory and his grace shine even brighter. That is our God, our God of grace. David came to understand God's grace and how it works. This portion here of God's word is packed with grace, and I'll show you. After David gets up from the floor in verse 24, it says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. In verse 15, Bathsheba is referred to as Uriah's wife. But now the loss of their son, after that it says that David comforted his wife Bathsheba. This is scandalous grace. The grace of God extends so far that he purified and hallowed a marriage bond which had been formed in dark and destructive, painful sin that leaves scars. the scandalous grace of God. And then there's more grace as it continues. Bathsheba bore a son and he called his name Solomon. Solomon, which is Hebrew for shalom and means peace, or comes from the Hebrew word shalom and means peace. And the child's name was a reminder to David that despite his sin, he was at peace with God because of God's scandalous grace. And then there's even more grace in verse 25. And the Lord loved him and sent a messenger by Nathan the prophet. And so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. And Jedidiah means beloved of Jehovah. He was, God was saying to David, we're still going with plan A. It is through this child Solomon that the Messiah will be born to show that you're forgiven, that this, not, this is not payback, this is not the end. I'm still in plan A. I am bringing the Messiah through Bathsheba. Because of God's scandalous grace, God uses broken, weak sinners to accomplish his plan A because salvation is all of grace. Now, time out for one second. I just want to be clear. This is not encouraging us to sin and be like, doesn't matter. God's got it. It's not it. Don't hear that because that's not what I'm saying. David did suffer the consequences. He wished he never did what he did. This is meant to drive home the point that we're all sinners and we all need a Savior. And only because, only because there is a Savior, God works in through us by grace to advance salvation in the world in ways we can't even begin to comprehend. But how can we be sure of that? My last point, you can be sure because God said the boy must die. God said to David, in order for salvation to go forward, 
your son must die. But unlike any other God in any other religion, our God never asks anything of anybody that he doesn't ask of himself. God says to himself, if salvation is to go forward in this world, my boy must die. With David, we're talking about salvation in his life. God said, David, for salvation to advance in your life, I gotta bring you back. But to bring salvation to the world, God the Father sends his son Jesus to be a sin offering. King Jesus suffered for us to save us because there was no other way. The Bible does not give us all of the information we want to answer all the questions we have about suffering, but it does give us enough light to see our gracious, life-giving God, and then once we do, get up and press on. And the greatest light comes from the cross. On the cross shows us that God hates suffering more than you do, more than any of us could. He hates it so much that he was willing to embrace suffering so that he could eventually destroy suffering and sin <laughs> without destroying us. The ultimate reason we can get up and press on is because God said to himself, my boy must die. You know, between times of reviewing my notes, um, I was uh, reviewing this, this book by Kim Crandall, uh, Beloved Mess, our, our sister in Christ here. And there's lots of stuff that I could quote here, but the t what stood out to me this morning was this. She says, what you need to hear from me is that I am a mess, you are a mess, and that there is hope outside of ourselves, a hope in the one who came and lived perfectly on our behalf because he knew that we would make a huge mess out of what we've been given. And she goes on to say, grace is not about God looking the other way, but rather about him looking directly at us and seeing every good work that his son has done on our behalf. Grace sustains us in our mess. It makes it possible to be loved as we are. This is scandalous grace. Now, I don't think she talks like that with all the sweating and spitting, and yelling. But that's what I feel when I read that. That's powerful. That's the power of the gospel. God is not the creator or source of sin and brokenness, but he can use our suffering to advance salvation in the world and in our lives. God loves you just the way you are, but he doesn't let you remain as you are. He transforms you into the likeness of his son. So our suffering is not payback, it's, it's surgery. And when we see that, it fills our heart with a desire to, to worship him. Nothing, I'm telling you, nothing heals like seeing Jesus for who he is and what he's done and what he's doing, what he's going to do, and then worshiping him with deep gratitude and a great hope. Nothing heals a heart like that. 
Okay. We're almost done. But I want to say this. Um, last, last Sunday, uh, your pastor did not want to go to church. All right? Um, so, you know, if, if you know us and our family and our story and everything like that, real briefly, um, you know, my wife's had fibromyalgia for many, many years, and then most recently she's had one thing hit after another. It was a stroke, and then it was a toxic mold from a broken water pipe that made her really sick. Then it was a shattered leg that required plate and screws. There were some other ailments mixed in there. We were up near the fires um, uh, recently, and uh, we stayed close by in the smoke. Um, what happened was Shannon's lungs filled with fluid. I had to go to the hospital, stay over there, and get it all sorted out. Then they gave her medication to dry it up, but then I dehydrated her, and she was fainting and stuff. It was just horrible. And then right as she was getting past all that, she noticed that she had some incredible pain on her skin. We thought it was a chemical burn of some kind. Long story. We put aloe on it, and nothing was getting better, and got worse and worse and more and more painful. And we went into the clinic, and last Saturday morning, she got diagnosed with shingles. And shingles attacks the nervous system, I guess, and causes shooting pain and burning, but it's even worse with people with fibromyalgia. So it was even more intense. I told grown men that my wife had had shingles, and they were like, oh, their face goes white. And then at her most pain, painful moment, I get clobbered with the cold. <laughs> she couldn't reach even over to the nightstand to grab her medication. That was Saturday. I did not feel like going anywhere. I didn't feel like going to church. But I'm the pastor and I was supposed to be preaching. So guess I got to go, even though I didn't feel like it. And I am so glad I did. Because when I showed up, I was surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who were singing praises to Jesus for his glorious grace, for his life and his death and his resurrection. And then I had to hear myself preach the gospel to you, and I was preaching it to myself because I know I needed it. And then afterwards, we all started singing again, praising Jesus for his glorious grace. That our, that, that our names are written in the book of life because of God's glorious grace, and it changed my whole perspective, and I found myself blessed and grateful and filled with a greater love for God and for my brothers and sisters in Christ. When you don't feel like it is when you need it the most. And I was blessed. 
When suffering blindsides you, and it will, if we're willing to trust him, he will cleanse us, and he will purify us, and he will heal us, and he will make us more like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace.